Welcome to the 269th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a discussion of the life and work of legendary disaster researcher, Dennis Maletti, who passed away due to COVID-19 in January. I'll be joined by Lori Peak and Amanda Ripley. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time and many Fridays at 5.30 p.m. Korea time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, April 29th, 2021, the death toll in the United States from COVID-19 is 574,330. In India, the death toll from COVID-19 reported today is 204,832 lives lost from the disease, and that's up from 201,187 deaths reported yesterday. It's a way to bring some humanity to the numbers. I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. And I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Dennis Maletti, expert on preparing for disasters, dies at 75. This was written by Neil Genslinger, published March 19th, 2021 in the New York Times, Those We've Lost series. A year ago, an opinion article in the Washington Post about the flailing American response to the emerging COVID-19 disaster quoted Dennis S. Maletti, an expert on how to prepare for and react to catastrophic events. This might be the largest public information mess I've ever witnessed, he said. It just breaks my heart. We know how to do emergency planning better than anyone on earth, and it's not there. Ten months later, on January 31st, Dr. Maletti himself became a COVID-19 casualty. He died of the disease at a hospital in Rancho Mirage, California, where he lived, his husband Rick Oliver said. He was 75. Dr. Maletti was director of the Natural Hazard Center at the University of Colorado Boulder from 1994 to 2003. He wrote a pivotal book in the field, Disasters by Design, which was published in 1999, and was often quoted on the finer points of disaster planning and response. Reporters and government agencies sought him out for input on Hurricane Katrina, the catastrophic tsunami of 2004, even the potential impact of the temporary closing of a Los Angeles freeway. He preached the importance of consistent messaging in the face of calamity. Otherwise, he said, people can choose to follow whatever advice they like, and efforts to mitigate loss will fail. Friends and colleagues posting tributes after his death wondered how the past year might have been different had his advice been followed. Dennis Stephen Maletti was born on November 7, 1945, in New York City to Victor and Angela Maletti. When he was an adolescent, the family moved to North Hollywood, California, where his father, a jeweler, jeweler who had worked for Cartier in New York, opened his own shop. 
in a 2012 interview with the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism. Dr. Maletti said an early movie-going experience had helped steer him toward his career path. The movie was Godzilla. I thought I was fascinated by the monster, he said, but in hindsight, I realized I was fascinated by the way the small herds of people moved when the monster appeared. After earning a master's degree at California State University in Los Angeles, he received his PhD in sociology at the University of Colorado Boulder in 1975, studying under Gilbert F. White, the founder of the Natural Hazard Center. The current director of the center, Laurie Peake, who studied under Dr. Maletti, said he had excelled at putting across his ideas. Dennis was a captivating speaker, she said by email. He didn't mind ruffling feathers because his goal was to make people think and then to encourage them to act. His insights went beyond the obvious, like having an evacuation plan for hurricane zones, to deeper questions, including how efforts to avoid hazards might backfire. A dam that controls flooding, for example, might lead to excessive development downstream, which carries future risks. Many of the nation's dams, bridges, and other structures are approaching the end of the designed life, revealing how little thought their backers and builders gave to events 50 years hence, he wrote in his book. Similarly, by providing advance warnings of severe storms, this country may well have encouraged more people to build in fragile coastal areas. Such development, in turn, makes the areas more, more vulnerable by destroying dunes and other protective features. It isn't really nature that's responsible for calamities, he said, but humans who don't plan properly when they settle and build. Even if the events from nature aren't getting larger, he said in a 2006 interview with Marshall Freck, producer of The Water's Edge, a documentary series on flooding, the impacts are skyrocketing because of decisions that humanity is making, and those decisions are consistent with short-term economic gains. He and Mr. Oliver, who had been together since 1967, married in 2003. Dr. Maletti is also survived by a brother, Richard. Dr. Maletti recommended that everyone envisioned having to survive 10 days in a desert in high heat and prepare accordingly. For me, I start my day with a cup of coffee and end it with a martini, he said in the 2012 interview. So my readiness kit includes a cowboy percolator coffee pot, Duraflame logs, a bottle of gin, a tiny ice cube maker, and an electric generator. Okay, let me introduce my guests for our discussion today. Lori Peake, who has been a guest three previous times on COVID calls, I'm happy to say, is a professor in the Department of Sociology and director of the Natural Hazard Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. She studies marginalized populations in disaster and is author of Behind the Backlash, Muslim Americans After 9-11. She's also co-editor of Displaced, Life in the Katrina Diaspora, and co-author of Children of Katrina. Lori received her PhD in sociology in 2005 from the University of Colorado Boulder, where she studied under Dennis Maletti and worked as his research assistant at the Natural Hazard Center. My second guest is Amanda Ripley. Amanda is an investig investigative journalist for The Atlantic and other magazines and a New York Times bestselling author. Her newest book released just this month is High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. She also wrote The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way about education and The Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why about the lessons of disaster survivors. In that last book, The Unthinkable, she featured Dennis Maletti, 
One of her favorite sources during the many years she spent covering disasters in Homeland Security for Time magazine in New York, Washington, and Paris. Her stories have helped Time win two National Magazine Awards. Amanda Ripley and Lori Peake, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thank you for having us, Scott. So I'd like to start the way I usually do. And this is a special discussion today focusing on Dennis coming at the end of uh, a week in which I've talked with writers of obituaries. And so it's been a, a quite interesting week to talk about how we talk about death. In this case, I have the chance to talk to two people who knew uh, Dennis Miletti really well. So before we turn to that, let me just get a sense of where you're calling from, how the pandemic is looking there, what the vaccination situation may be looking like there today. Amanda, can I start with you, please? Sure. So I am in Washington, D.C., where about a third of the people here have received at least one shot. Uh, I have been fortunate to receive two at this point, so I'm fully vaccinated and very grateful. Um, the numbers have been steadily going down here. So things are starting to slowly, very almost imperceptible to the human eye, <laughs> slowly open up a bit. And it, in terms of things being open, um, restaurants, but also more important things like schools and the museums there in DC, are things getting back to some level you know, of operating? It is frustratingly slow, in my opinion. You know, the Smithsonian museums are supposed to reopen in May. Uh, the National Zoo has been closed for most of this pandemic, even though it's outside and it's free and it's one thing that families can do, even when they're strapped for cash. So it's been frustrating. Um, the school system is haltingly opening, but again, more slowly than uh, more slowly than I'd like. But it's you know, inch by inch, as my mother-in-law says, inch by inch, <laughs> we'll get there. Lori, it's good to see you again, and welcome back to COVID calls. Uh, Amanda's describing a situation of inch by inch progress where she is. How's it looking in Boulder? Yeah, and Scott, it's so good to see you and really an honor to be here with Amanda as well. And um, yeah, so thank you for having us and thank you for always asking this question. So in Boulder, um, we are right now, I, I just looked after hearing Amanda, 42% of eligible uh, adults are vaccinated in Boulder County and 62% have had one shot. And so we are on an upswing and it, it feels like that. I, I mean, it really, people are out there on the road, people are, uh, you know, biking, hiking, doing all the things that people do here in Boulder. And at the university, they actually announced this week that um, they are going to require all students, staff and faculty to be vaccinated in advance of our return to classes on in, in the fall. And they are anticipating that about 70% of our classes will be in person. And so that was sort of the mm. big news from where I spend most of my life at the university uh, that was released this week. And so that really gave a lot of hope to know that there is going to be that requirement around the vaccine for thinking about the possibility of actually returning to the core of our educational mission. That has a, such a huge impact. I mean, I know in private universities had come out early with uh, that announcement that they were going to do that, but I haven't heard of many publics or one as large as uh, where you are making that announcement. So that's quite something. 
Yeah, in the University of Colorado system, four campuses, over 60,000 students, over 40,000 staff. And I, even at the beginning of this week, it wasn't clear to me that they were going to make that requirement. But I understand that our governor uh, was very supportive of this. <laughs> so from the top of the state yeah. on down. And so it will be really interesting to see how other universities across the nation, private and public, really follow or don't follow suit in this regard. There have been so many convergences of disaster in this past year. And I, um, I should ask you about how things are in Boulder after the mass shooting, Lori. It was such devastating news to see. It, in the middle of such a devastating period, how is everyone doing there? Yeah, thank you for asking about that. That's right on uh, March 22nd, 10 people uh, perished in the King Super shooting here. And I, I think it's quite variable as with everything. It was another trauma on top of many other traumas that have been unfolding for quite some time. And so, um, you know, I can't speak for how everybody is doing, but I, I would definitely say that the community, there have been a lot of resources that have been made available. There have been a lot of, even during this time of distance, um, you know, the entire community was invited to go outside and observe a moment of silence. And so sort of the theme of the pandemic, how do we come together when we're apart, continued to be a theme in the uh, response to that disaster as well. Well, let's turn to some discussion of Dennis Maletti. Um, I never had the chance to, to know him, although at, there was a point in my career in which I carried a copy of Disasters by Design. I was just remembering this last night. I just carried around. And historians do that kind of thing. Um, his work has meant a lot to me, but I never had the chance to really to get to know him. Um, Lori, so I'd like to hear from both of you just about Dennis as a person. And Lori, I'm going to start with you on that. Nice. Thank you for that. And just thank you for doing this show on Dennis. I'm such a believer that people are never really, they're never really gone as long as we keep speaking their name and sharing what we learn from them. And so I'm just I'm really excited to be here to talk about Dennis. And so I, I actually met Dennis when I was applying to graduate programs. I, I lived up in Fort Collins. I did a master's at Colorado State and I wanted to go to CU Boulder for my PhD. And so I, out of the blue, emailed Dennis because he was the chair of the Department of Sociology and said, you know, can I come and meet with you and talk about the program? And he he made time. He made a 30-minute meeting with me and I will never forget it. He, I think everybody who's met Dennis Valetti would agree he is an unforgettable person. And I just remember I was sitting in his office in Ketchum Arts and Sciences on the University of Colorado campus. 20, I, I mean, I would have been 21 years old, you know, and I was just transfixed. And I thought, this is the person who I want to work with. And, um, you know, and so I sat there, I listened to him. He told me all about the program. And then I was fortunate to get accepted into the program, and I ended up um, being hired the summer before I started to be a research assistant at the Natural Hazard Center. And so Dennis was just, you know, from the, the day I walked into that center, I, he was, he's a force of nature, and, um, and he just imprinted so much on my mind and on my heart and um, was such a special person. And so that was how I... Um, came to know him and, and the question of what was he like 
I mean, again, unforgettable. <laughs> he was funny. He was so, so smart. I mean, so smart, meticulous in everything that he did. Dennis kept a um, paper calendar, one of, you know, an eight by 10 paper calendar his whole life that he wrote everything in pencil. He scheduled to the minute everything that he did because he wanted to make every minute count. And I think that was something about Dennis's life that he did make every minute count through his research. When he was researching, he was researching. When he was teaching 400 students in intro to sociology, he was teaching 400 students with his full being. When he was giving a lecture to 10 emergency managers or a thousand, he was 100% there with you. And he was just fully present in everything that he did. And um, yeah, I think I think I will stop there because I know Amanda has so much to share about coming to know Dennis too. But I will say this, that I, Amanda will never remember this, but um, I met Amanda at the Natural Hazards Workshop and I actually sat like one chair away from her and I knew she was this journalist from Time who had come to the workshop at, I believe Dennis, it was either Dennis or Kathleen had invited Amanda and then Amanda went on to write the extraordinary book, The Unthinkable, which I read on an airplane, which I don't know if I would recommend, <laughs> but I read The Unthinkable and then I got to the chapter with Dennis in it and I was like, oh my goodness. And so years later, when I finally got to meet Amanda, really meet Amanda and come to know her. Um, and so anyway, Scott, just thank you for bringing us together and letting us both talk about how we came to meet this extraordinary man. Thanks, Lori. I'm going to bring Amanda in. And I love your description of the hazards meeting. And it is a bit like that. It's like somebody new is here. Somebody interesting is here. Let's, who is that? You know, and um, Amanda, I know you you met Dennis. Maybe you met him in your reporting before you were working on the book, The Unthinkable. I'm not I'm not sure. But that's the context in which you met him. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to to meet him and to work with him as a person who was a source for you and then I guess became a friend. Yeah, it's so nice to just hear Lori talk about Dennis, like her, her joy in his in the memory of him is like infectious. You know, I don't know if you can sense that, but I really feel like he's almost here with us just listening to Lori talk about him. Um, so yeah, I was a reporter covering um, terrorism disasters for Time magazine and somehow found out that there was this place where they actually study these things. <laughs> I had no idea. And I was like, wow. And they have a conference and it's supposedly really good. And so uh, somehow convinced my editor to send me there. And in July of 2006, I think, I think that was the first one I went to, but may not have been. But I just remember vividly that Dennis appeared at a panel that was titled Risk Wise Behavior and there were about, you know, 440 people there listening. Dennis went last. Um, he was wearing a Hawaiian shirt, which he often wore. Um, and he was the only one who didn't have a PowerPoint, I remember. Um, and he just got up and started preaching, basically. So he was like a reporter's dream, you know, because he was, he used emotion. He was clear. He wasn't afraid to say things that were provocative, but true. And I, he said, how many people do you need to see pounding through their roofs before we tell them how high the floodwaters can be, how hard the ground can shake, how many citizens must die to get us to do it? If you can't create the political will, do it anyway, he said. And I remember the crowd went crazy because, you know, it was like 
it's easy in these events to kind of get into this droning talk about data and PowerPoints and so on, caveats and, you know, the known knowns and the unknowns. And, and Dennis just kind of cut to the chase. Um, and we had lunch after that uh, next to Boulder Creek. And he just was so good at talking in a way that people, regular people could understand and relate to and sort of unafraid to do that, you know? Um, and it, he was an interesting kind of personality because on the one hand, like a lot of disaster researchers I've met, he was sort of perpet like a low level constant sense of frustration, right? <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, these things keep happening over and over yeah. and uh, people don't always, you know, listen. And, uh, <laughs> and, and yet also at the same time, simultaneously he had this optimism you know, this like real deep faith that we could do better, that we will do better. Um, you know, whereas I find it's easy for me, and this is not something I'm proud of, but I get sort of jaded after I've said the same thing, you know, when I have a book come out or whatever, and I say the same thing like a thousand times, I feel like, okay, I've done what I can do. I'm done here. You know what I mean? Like I can't. Uh, and, and Dennis never gave up on the American public. He never was annoyed by my dumb questions. There was a lot I didn't know. There's still a lot I don't know. And I never felt like um, he was judging me for that. He was just, he, he, uh, he recognized that to get to millions of Americans, he had to go through me, <laughs> you know, or at least that was one way to do it. And he really felt, it felt like he was an ally, like he was a truth teller, like he could speak truth to power. And, um, and I always really enjoyed our conversations on, on top of that. So, uh, and he had a good sense of humor, you know, cause I remember in the, in the book, the unthinkable, I wrote, um, that, you know, after Dennis says something particularly provocative, he laughs with a loud bark showing off unnaturally white straight teeth. And I remember I saw him at the next conference after the book came out and I was a little nervous about <laughs> how that was going to go over. And he's like, Oh yeah, you're the one who wrote about my teeth. Like I saw him in like a buffet line or something. <laughs> and I was like, that's right. <laughs> he goes, how you doing? Like he was just told, he remembered it. You know, I don't know how he really felt, but it didn't slow him down because, you know, the mission was more important than his vanity, I guess, in this case. But uh, he, he had a sense of humor about it. As far as I know, I mean, Lori, you may know differently. You knew him much better than I did. But. Uh, let me just follow up on one thing you said, um, Amanda, because I think it's something that the disaster researchers I know really, really work hard at, which is that they are carrying with them um, a lot of social science knowledge, really complicated studies in many cases around risk communication, let's say. Um, and then they get the chance to talk to somebody um, who is a translator for a, a broader audience. And I think for a lot of disaster researchers, that's a nerve wracking experience. Um, how do I find the right details? How, how do I point? And without doing what we do as researchers, like, well, here's six studies for you to go and look at. Journalists, some journalists might do that, but if you're on deadline, you might not have time to do that. So say, can you say a little bit more about those interactions with him as a sort of a translator of a body of research, the kinds of details he might point out to you or the ways that he would explain that often quite esoteric and complicated research so that it could then turn into um, facts that you could put in a story. I think there were three important things that he did. The first is he told stories. He was a natural storyteller. So he understood the importance of, you know, even if it's not a big story, you know, telling a story of 
some project he recently worked on or a dam here or a nuclear power plant uh, investigation there, you know, and, and he understood that you could go across different hazards in that way. And it was okay that, that, you know, audiences often appreciate um, analogy. <laughs> and so that was one thing. The other thing was that um, it could be by the time, you know, I was interviewing Dennis, he was no longer sort of in charge, I believe at the hazard center. So I don't know if that liberated him, Lori, I'd be curious what you think, but he didn't seem that worried about whether he got in trouble. Um, and maybe that was the time that we were living in. Maybe that was his role. Maybe that was just his personality. I mean, there are people who are just kind of let things roll. Um, but that also was super important. Like you have to take some risk, you know, you have to just be willing to put it out there and not overthink it. And it's sort it's sort of like he seemed to understand that there's a lot of noise out there and you're not going to be able to get every, you know, footnote just right in the mainstream media, right? And so it's okay. You don't have to like perfect it. Um, it's like the hurly burly of the conversation and you're not, it's just, it, it's a constant, constant conversation. So you don't have to get everything just right and caveat it eight ways and talk to me on background or off the record and then come back. And I mean, you can do that, but it just makes it much less likely that it's going to be in the story and, um, and, and, you know, just much less memorable for the audience. And the third thing that he did was he let his conviction shine through. So even when what he was talking about was objectively a little in the weeds sometimes, that passion underneath it, like I was describing from that panel, right, that gets you a long way um, mm -hmm. and makes it, you know, so that the story writes itself, you know, because he's giving you some emotion in his quote, which is authentic. I mean, you don't want to make it up, right? But uh, then, you know, you can kind of tolerate some like um, analysis of different text messaging devices or things that Dennis used to get really excited about right. <laughs> and because the passion is driving it. Lori, just to bring you back in to react to anything Amanda said, and, and then uh, we also want to get a, a sort of a sense for people who may not be as familiar with with his work, sort of like, how how Dennis got started and what were some of the key research areas that he was interested in. And Patrick Roberts, thanks for listening, Patrick. It's good to see you here. Patrick asked the same question. How did Dennis Maletti come to study disasters? So anything you want to take in those in those areas? Absolutely. And Amanda, I just I think that is such a, a beautiful synthesis of Dennis's strengths as a communicator. And I, I think you are right that after he retired from CU and from the Natural Hazard Center that he, um, that maybe there was just a little bit of liberation that comes from that, right? But I, I think that right, he was always, he was all that you said. I mean, he was always a storyteller. He was always a truth teller. And he always spoke about things that mattered. And I remember one time Dennis told me that um, Gilbert White, who's the founder of our center and was one of Dennis's mentors, um, that Gilbert had said one time to Dennis, and this had a profound influence on Dennis, that Gilbert had said, um, whenever you go to give a talk, that is a chance to influence people to do the right thing. And I think that Dennis carried that with him his whole life, and he passed like those words on to me. And, and I always, I thought like once he shared that you stop being scared because it's no longer about you 
it's not about you at all. It's about like what you're trying to put into the world and what that possibility can be. And when you recognize like what you're sharing is literally a matter of life and death. And I think he took that with him everywhere. That was always so clear in what he was speaking about as well. And so, um, yeah, so thank you for that. And I love uh, Patrick's question about what led Dennis to study disasters. And so I think there were so many things that Dennis used to always talk about. So he was born in New York City. Um, I always like identified as a New Yorker, but when he was a boy, his family actually moved to California. And so all of a sudden, Dennis is this young boy in earthquake country, comes to be very aware of earthquakes, but he also used to tell stories about like how Godzilla movies <laughs> really influenced him and sort of his imagination and so forth. And so um, Dennis had this sort of this interest and fascination with disasters, but when he came to the University of Colorado Boulder where he did his PhD in sociology, Dennis actually was hired by Gilbert to be one of the students who worked on the first assessment of natural hazards in the United States. And so I, Dennis's master's work uh, in California was definitely connected to disasters as well. And that was part of what brought him to the University of Colorado Boulder, but definitely his interest and his expertise was solidified during his PhD work and especially working with Gilbert on that first assessment. And as far as his development of the expertise in risk communication, Dennis also told a great story about this, which, so this is, I don't know if people could actually see us, Scott, but this is, you talk about carrying around books. So this is the first assessment and this uh -huh. is the second assessment that Dennis yeah. led. And the first assessment that Gilbert led, Dennis used to tell this story about how he was in the room, the meeting with all the grad students, Mike Lindell was there, John Sorensen, all of these other leading hazards researchers who worked on the first assessment. And Gilbert, I guess, pointed to a bookshelf, which at that time held everything that had been written on risk communication. And Gilbert told Dennis, okay, you're going to read all of that and you're going to do the section on risk communication. And later Dennis told me, you know, how funny it was to him because at the time as a grad student he thought I'll never be able to read all of that you know it was literally like one library shelf and now of course the risk communication literature would fill multiple libraries <laughs> and so but at the time you know and that's what Dennis did he read he read everything on risk communication and that ended up becoming his first book and and setting the you know planting the seeds for what became an extraordinary career in that area so Patrick I hope that answers your question a, a little bit and does it justice. I can remember visiting the first time I visited the Natural Hazard Center um, and Kathleen Tierney was the director. And Kathleen was so generous to me. I mean, I was working on a PhD dissertation and she took time and I, I'll never forget. I mean, it was just so the, the spirit of the place that I guess Gilbert had established and that others, including Dennis, had passed along, that it had this openness to people coming from different disciplines who were interested in what they did there. Um, and, and she, we sat on the porch and talked and, you know, and, and then rummaging through, you know, the, the library there and pulling things out and, and they encouraged me to take things and they actually gave me a copy, sort of loaned me indefinitely a copy of that first assessment. 
And I remember sitting and reading it and just having that same experience, you know, you, you're describing about Dennis, um, Laurie is like, how do they draw together all of this work to make out of these many disparate things, something that started to look like a field by the 1970s. And I think that's something we probably don't pay enough attention to talking about how diverse of a field disciplinarily disaster research actually is. And to begin to draw it into something that could bring people to a conference um, that could be coherent and then could begin to try to influence policy, which is what Gilbert wanted to do and, and Dennis and others, um, that was a real achievement. Uh, 20 years later, um, no, 30 years later, um, Dennis took the lead on the Disasters by Design project. Let's talk about that a little bit for a second. Um, I don't know, Lori, let me bring you in first and then Amanda, I'll bring you back in just to talk a little bit about that intervening period of time, but also how important that 1999 book has been. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's right. The first assessment, which was led by Gilbert White, a eminent geographer, and Jean Haas, a sociologist, that was published in 1975. And then the second assessment, what we call the second assessment, but Disasters by Design is the published name of the book. The second assessment was published in 1999. And Dennis had actually come back to the University of Colorado Boulder, I believe, in 1994 is when he became the director of the Hazard Center. So Dennis was the director of the Hazard Center from 1994 to 2003. And so when Dennis came back to the University of Colorado Boulder, that he really, the second assessment was one of his key projects that he was planning on working on. And so he actually brought together, a, he, he did a different model. So when Gilbert led the first assessment, it really was teams of graduate students predominantly at the Natural Hazard Center and at the University of Colorado Boulder who were working with Dennis or with Gilbert on that first assessment. But Dennis took a different approach where he also brought in many graduate students from the University of Colorado Boulder like Alice Fothergill, Eve Passerini, Lynn Wright, uh, Eve Grenfest and others. So Dennis also brought in many graduate students, but he also brought together over 130 of the nation's leading hazards and disaster experts who contributed to the second assessment. And so they, he had various working groups um, that were working together on the second assessment. And then also multiple other books were produced as part of the second assessment. So Howard Cunrather led one, Susan Cutter led another, Kathleen Tierney, Mike Glendell, um, and Ron Perry led another. And so, so there were several additional books that came out of the second assessment project because it was such a, a major undertaking. And then the National Academies under the Joseph Henry Press published all of those books. And so, um, yeah, so that was a little bit about the process of the second assessment. And I can say I started graduate school in 1999 at school right after the second assessment had been published. And so Dennis was on an airplane every single week because Disasters by Design had just come out and he was across the country, around the world, trying to convey the message of sustainable hazards mitigation. If we are ever going to turn the tide of rising disaster losses that really engaging in sustainable hazards mitigation and not uh, putting off future losses for future generations to deal with, instead dealing with it now, was at the heart of the recommendation for the second assessment. And 
uh, to use Amanda's word, talk about conviction. Dennis, I mean, that was his conviction. How can how can we do something about the disasters that we are designing today um, that are going to unfold tomorrow and years from now? And so, yeah, so that's a little backstory on the second assessment. Thanks, Scott. What remarkable oh, wow. team efforts. And then to imagine Dennis sort of on the road, um, touring the record, you know, touring the, the, the book and then taking, again, sort of translating this complicated work of many teams of researchers into messages that could then be put into place by practitioner communities or could be have uptake into the policy process or in journalism. Thanks for going into that detail. Mind folks, you're listening to COVID Calls, and we're having a special COVID Calls discussion today on the life and work of disaster researcher Dennis Maletti, who died earlier this year of COVID-19. I'm talking with Amanda Ripley and Lori Peak. Amanda, just turning back to you and, and talking a little bit about the work um, you gave, I, I loved your description of how you sort of found disaster research. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about some of the concepts that you found most provocative, maybe under, misunderstood ideas um, that you then went on to explain in your book, The Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why? What did you find compelling about the research? You know, I think so often in journalism, we cover each disaster as if it's never happened before. Um, and it's often different people covering them, right? So there's not really, wasn't really a beat per se. Um, I ended up sort of creating a beat at time, which I was able to do thanks to my editors at the time, and we had the resources to do it. But that was really important because you start to see how much of this was, you know, predicted, warned about, studied, modeled, simulated, and how similar human behavior is across really different disasters, right? Which, um, I don't think is well understood in the sort of among lay people. And so that to me was really interesting. And what I found was, you know, after 9-11, I did a lot of sort of traditional stories, obviously, about that disaster. And you kind of, at least I kind of reached a, a, a wall, you know, because you, you do the stories of sadness and loss, very important. You do the stories of blame and accountability, also important. Um, and then, you know, what else? Like, it just felt like there had to be more. And what I found anecdotally was just every survivor I was interviewing had things that had surprised them about the experience, about what it felt like physically, emotionally, socially to evacuate the Trade Center or in other disasters, hurricanes, you know, how they made the decision to evacuate or not evacuate. And there were really specific things, many of them hopeful, that they wanted people to know. But none of that naturally made its way into our stories. And it certainly didn't come up in your average, you know, Homeland Security hearing on Capitol Hill. And it just seemed like, for me, a way to take these stories, which were so heavy and hard to carry, and turn them at least in some way towards the future and try to make them useful um, which, you know, most disaster survivors I had spent time with really wanted to do. 
So it didn't feel quite as extractive or exploitive Hmm. as some of the other stories we do. So it was in a way my coping device for uh, for the level of sort of despair that you feel. If you just, you know, to write a story like that and do it well, I think you have to feel it on some level. And you just can't keep doing that indefinitely. Um, you eventually sort of wall yourself off from feeling it, or which makes the story worse, or, uh, or you stop doing it, I think, or you, you know, are traumatized. <laughs> so those are your choices. Um, so to me, Dennis was really an important um, teacher for me as well, because he always centered people, you know, that was really different from a lot of other research and, um, preparedness conversations I had observed was, you know, you can get really in the weeds and and I know it's important to talk about, you know, uh, all hazards and communication devices and all these things. But I think the percentage that we talk about people, (laughs) Um, is still a little low. And and Dennis helped me see that everything was about people. Um, you know, he, he just, he got that viscerally. And even though he could, he would happily get in the weeds, he loved data. Um, there was still a sense that, you know, look, we got to deal with people the way they're wired, he used to say, right? And this is the way we are. And you also, you know, he'd say things like, he had like certain catchphrases, which I'm sure Lori will recognize, but he'd say things like, you don't have to scare people to death to get them to do what you need them to do. The science is really clear on that. He would always reference the science, um, <laughs> which I enjoyed. And, and he was right, right? Um, so having those phrases in his pocket was very helpful, I think, for those kinds of interviews where, because he could, it's not easy, right, to move between academia and uh clinicians and, you know, just dilettante journalists like myself. So uh, the fact that he could do that meant he was sort of trilingual. Um, and and that's really, really valuable. Uh, just to highlight something you said there, which I think is really important to Amanda, is that the tension of journalism that's following disasters as events in the moment on deadline and and the fact that also there are not a lot of journalists who have the disaster beat, whatever that may be, um, for whatever region they're living in, um, to find someone like yourself who could then turn that into an ongoing set of stories and eventually a book um, and more work that then begins to draw those connections across disasters and across time. I mean, disasters by design, disasters as a process, disasters in society. Um, that's really important. And so, I think, you know, him spotting you and working that relationship um, as an intellectual relationship is also really important and doesn't get enough attention, I don't think. Uh, I wonder if you're, oh, if any reaction to that, Amanda, but also maybe some hope that that can become more consistent in our media space. I mean, particularly with yeah. COVID on our minds, I'm really worried um, that as often happens, the reporting, it does what it has to do. It follows the breaking news, but then where are we a year or five years later when we need to have followed those stories across time? Right. Because the best research, as you both know, will come out in like three years. I mean, way after the news media has moved on, but that research is really important and really interesting. So you really have to have relationships, um, which I think Dennis valued 
so that when, I mean, that's was one thing with Katrina, because I had met Lori and Dennis and other people from the coming to the hazard center, when Katrina happened, you know, we knew who to call right away. And it, it made the reporting so much richer and better. And we just, we knew that there were, there were reams and reams of, of, of um, studies and research and analysis that we could draw from to kind of widen the lens on the story. So it's not just about the mayor of New Orleans failed to call a mandatory evacuation. I mean, that's important, right? And um, that is a pattern, right? That, that uh, people in authority often underestimate the public um, in, in disasters and, uh, and are afraid of panic and other things. So seeing that pattern makes the story much more useful and interesting, but you have to have those relationships, you know, just like with, emergency response, the relationships have to predate the the incident. So it's hard now because especially local print news is is so uh, decimated. But uh, having those relationships with local TV people, I think is a great idea. And really building those relationships in advance, um, offering them visuals, they're always hungry for visuals and, and really having take, you know, once we can going out to lunch with them before and, and you know, all you have to do is say you can offer them an exclusive on some new research. Like you don't really have to say anything else. And then <laughs> okay, good tip. Everybody <laughs> write that down. <laughs> yeah. And and do it. You know, give it to them first. And, you know, I know that can be tricky with peer review. Well, you know, as Dennis would say, do it anyway, right? So yeah. you can figure it out. Um, and again, it doesn't have to be perfect, it doesn't have to be the last word. They're gonna give you like three minutes. I mean, it's you know, so uh, don't overthink it, but have the relationship, offer them some exclusivity, which works well with their boss and have that relationship so they can call you um, when something that will seem to the layperson to be unrelated happens. They will know that actually it's, it's not new. Uh, <laughs> and so that's important. I think. The, the community of, of the hazards center and disaster research, which I think is a, it's a big tent of researchers and, and people who are connected to that world and journalists as well as policymakers um, have, there's been a lot of outpouring about Dennis Maletti's death and Lori at the Hazard Center on their site, I'm just gonna put the link up here. There's a series of tributes. It's pretty overwhelming and I hope people will take some time to look at those. I'm gonna actually just read one um, by Diane Smith who uh, worked at the Natural Hazard Center and I met her when, when I first made my first trip out there. I'm just going to read this. Dennis was more than just a wonderful boss, she wrote, and the best person I've ever worked for. I so enjoyed his integrity and honesty in dealing with all levels of people. He was a giant in the hazards community and was respected and loved by all. Many days he would come in running with feet barely touching the floor on a busy day. He not only directed the Natural Hazard Center with grace and honor, but also ran the challenging department of sociology. He learned from the best, Gilbert White, and he always made time to talk with you. And he listened intently and caringly, making you feel like you were the most important person in the world. Like all that knew Dennis, I just loved him and he will be dearly missed. My heartfelt sympathy and prayers to Rick. That was written by Diane Smith at the Natural Hazard Center. Lori, can you talk a little bit about the process of pulling these tributes together and what that has been like? Yeah, absolutely. And um, Diane was the, the lead administrative assistant at the center for many years and was there um, when, when I was a graduate student and just, she used to love it. Dennis used to always say to her, 
treat me like I'm a fourth grader and tell me what to do. And so he would, and she loved, he would come back from trips and Dennis had this thing where he kept all of his receipts organized in an envelope. And, and that was of course like a dream because he would come in and hand it to Diane and, and he just, he did love her and she loved him. And, and he was just so good to all of us. And thank you for reading that, Scott. Um, you are right. It is one of many tributes that is up on the Hazard Center website. So um, after Dennis passed away, um, I had talked to Rick, his lifelong, truly lifelong partner. And um, and we decided to put the tribute page up on the Hazard Center website. So other people from different dimensions of Dennis's life would have a chance to share their memories of him. And that is, that is what people have done. Um, his former graduate student RAs and TA, teaching assistants, his former colleagues in sociology, I, his own friends from graduate school, colleagues who he worked with over the years from federal agencies, academic institutions, private sector, just the gamut of people have written in. And there have also been many people who wrote in who never met Dennis, like never really met him, but they heard him speak. And they talked about what an influence they that it had on his life. And so just thanks for calling this out and sharing the link, Scott, because I hope if there's anybody out there listening who knew Dennis who hasn't shared their story yet, we would be so honored and so pleased if you would put that up there so we could have it as part of the archive. But also I know it's meant a lot to Rick to be able to just read those tributes and to have access to them. And so um, we would love to hear from even more people who Dennis touched and influenced through the Maletti effect. And um, so we would love that very much. And also just, it, it is, it's kind of like salve for the soul to be able to go up there and, and to read those words. So thank you. I was, again, just reading those yesterday and just thinking we should all strive to work in such a way that you would have so many people comment and a lot of times you know like in diane's there'd be a line that says obviously a brilliant guy and but the rest of it is just about how he carried himself in the world and i and i think for academics who are often under such pressure to produce you know um career defining work path defining work and of course it's it's tense and it's it's competitive and we have to do that but those other pieces are the ones that people write about uh, and I, I just, I hope people will go and spend some time with those tributes and, and Lori, they're still open. People can, can still contribute. Yes. We have a forum that's up there that, that people can contribute to. And I just wanted to say again, Scott, thank you for reading them and a shout out to Amanda because before she wrote her really extraordinary piece in the Washington post that was shared far and wide across the hazards community, I know Amanda, as an expert journalist, went and read many of those as well. And so, um, yeah, people can absolutely still contribute in there as we post, you know, sort of every week, Jeffrey at the Hazard Center posts the newest tributes up there. So we'll get them live very soon if, if you post a new one. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls tribute to Dennis Maletti with Lori Peake and Amanda Ripley. Amanda, uh, Lori mentioned this op-ed that you published uh, earlier in the year after Dennis died in the Washington Post. And in there, you have this extraordinary line. You say, when I last spoke to Dennis Maletti, one of the world's leading experts on how humans behave in disasters, he told me he was frightened. And that's in the context of COVID-19. What was he frightened of? 
you know, when I heard that Dennis had died, uh, the first thing I did was go look back at my notes because I had reached out to him. I hadn't talked to him in years because I'd been covering other things. And, you know, I reached out to him because I was writing, obviously, about COVID for the post and trying to be useful. And so we had talked very early in the pandemic. I mean, really, like the first week. Um, And he was really distressed. Like I'd actually never, I had never heard him be this distressed. And that line he said about him being scared, I remember really reacting to that internally. Like I didn't want to hear that at that point, you know, as Dennis taught me the first phase most of us go through in a disaster is some level of denial. And I think I was, I was in that phase. Um, I like to think that somehow I'm different and I could skip that (laughs) phase, but no. Um, So he said to me, when I stop thinking and just lay in the quiet, I get really scared. And it's the lack of knowledge. It's the lack of planning. He said he was particularly upset. I mean, there were some states that he called out and praised, but at that point, early on, he was particularly upset with the feds. He said the feds are just an embarrassment. They should turn them off. Here, I think he's talking about politicals, like politicians. Pull the plug. If you don't know what you're doing, don't do it. We have people saying it will be over soon and other people saying it could be months. That gives the public the ability to pick the answer they like, which is the number one no-no in public messaging. Of course, you know, easier said than done looking back on it, right? We really didn't know what we didn't know, um, but that's often true. Um, so anyway, he did also say that he wasn't, he wasn't scared of dying of COVID. He said that, I think what he was scared of was for the country, you know? And then he said, of course, I don't believe I'm going to get it and die because I'm a human and I process risk like anyone else. (laughs) So even there, he was aware of his own, um, risk calculus and his own blind spots. And, uh, but that really stayed with me and it, it bothered me so much, you know, I'm not more subconsciously, I think that I didn't use it in the piece. You know, I used other things he said, which were really powerful, but, um, it was only when that I did the second piece after he died where I, I included that line. Um, because I just think I wasn't ready to hear it, you know, because Dennis had never seemed scared to me. Um, (laughs) so it was, it was unsettling and, uh, he turned out, you know, to be right. Almost up on time and our discussion today about Dennis Maletti just wanted to give each of my guests a chance. If there's any final things you wanted to say about him or, or think about his legacy going forward, Amanda, your thoughts on that. You know, I'm just very grateful that I got to know him when I did and that he was so open and, honest and unafraid in talking to a reporter. There's lots of good reasons not to trust reporters. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he never, he never seemed too worried about whether, you know, he wanted me to get it right. That was for sure. But I felt like I could always redeem myself (laughs) and (laughs) the mission was bigger than me or than him. And, and that really is inspiring to me. Lori, I'm going to give you the last word in this discussion of Dennis Maletti today. Thank you. And this has just been really moving. Um, so I guess I just say about Dennis's legacy that obviously, I mean, he, he leaves behind a, 
tremendous body of written work, multiple books, but over, well over 100 journal articles. So, so much written material that continues to be so widely cited in our field. And so there's obviously that piece of his legacy, but I think you picked up Scott on, it was so much more than that, than what he's leaving behind with the written word. It's also his spoken word and how he influenced truly countless people through his interviews, his speeches, his way of being in interactionally and so forth. And then as his former student, I mean, what he's left behind in terms of all of the students that he taught and mentored over the years and how committed he was to us, um, I, I think is uh, gonna be another big part of his legacy. And um, I'm so thankful for what he left behind. And I remember the last time I, I saw him in person was February of 2020. And I think something that always struck me about Dennis, because he had this, even though he was sort of larger than life, he also had this humility about him. And he would pick me up at the airport and he was driving me and he said, Lori, people don't know, I'm just a big teddy bear. <laughs> and then he went on to say, he said, um, people don't realize, you know, that um, that he, he was just sort of like reflecting on his life. And he said, I'm still like that 12 year old boy that I can't believe people listen to me. And, you know, and he said, and that was, I think, part of his legacy, too, of wanting to make sure that other people would be listened to and really be heard in this field. And he always had a, carried that belief with him. So may we, may we all do that. You can, you can catch COVID calls weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, hope you'll go back and take a look at the other calls from this week and uh, my interviews with Paige Cornwell and Dan Waken and Chris Majerian talking about obituary writing. And I want to thank my guests for today talking about the life and legacy of disaster researcher Dennis Maletti, Amanda Ripley, and Lori Peake. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having us, Scott. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you on Monday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Thank you.